While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Pot. Welcome to Overdue. <laughs> this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I think it's a popcast this week. Oh, jeez. Uh, I'm too sick for your puns. Craig is sick. It's the worst Christmas crud. I got the Christmas crud. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> Who gave you that for Christmas? I don't... I Kids? I don't know. Ugh, kids. I, Probably some teens. Oh, God teens drinking coke and texting all the time surge is back you know they're on that they don't know they don't even amazon is for old people where are they getting their surge from i thought snapchat (laughs) just snapchat to do some surge yeah look at this look at this picture of this weird old can that i found oh it's gone let's drink what's inside (laughs) it's been snapchatted it's gone they're making new surge or that they discovered like a cache of surge that that have been buried like in those, yeah, the like, New Mexico desert for like for like fifteen years. Underneath all of the old copies of ET for the Atari, they found twelve cases of Surge. Or maybe it's just like the government has a Surge reserve. Oh yeah, they, like Canada's like oil. maple syrup reserve. Oh, is that a thing? There is a you... strategic maple syrup reserve. I'm not making this up. Because there were bandits who stole a bunch of maple syrup, and they had to deploy the maple syrup reserve. What it wasn't? Didn't that happen in Home Alone too? <laughs> the sticky bandits, the maple syrup bandits. <laughs> um, speaking of Canada, this is a good segue. Um, we got we got a couple of listener emails this week. It's actually been like a week and a half since we recorded our last show, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, so we got this one. On December 3rd from uh, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Um, And he was listening to our episode on Handmaid's Tale and about our talking about Canada. And as we discussed then, you know, we told you that as Americans, we're not like obligated (laughs) to know anything about Canada. Case in point, when we read or when you read Life of Pi years and years and 20 years ago, I did did not know that that was written by a Canadian author. Nope. <laughs> like that's in Patrick's email and I was like news to me. <laughs> um and he was he was listening specifically to our stuff about uh Quebec separatism. And um he says that he laughed a lot and I don't think he was laughing because we were being intentionally funny. <laughs> <laughs> says I laughed a lot when you started talking about Quebec separatism. Quebec separatists are a large group, enough to consistently gather national attention, but have yet to actually get a majority vote to cede from Canada. Uh, Quebec separatism is best understood by comparing it to Irish and Scottish separatists in the UK. It's very real, a lot of people really want it, and we even had a domestic terrorist group active in the 1960s and 70s. The Front de Libération de Quebec. <laughs> oh, that's, that's actually written in there after it. You have to, that's part of the name, I think. You took like AP French, so I assume that you know 
where laughs go. Oh, yeah, that's actually part of the... There is no joke apart on the AP French exam where you look at a bunch of cartoons and you have to <laughs> write in, Fran- in France, in French, what might be happening. And then you have to like speak it into a tape recorder. <laughs> so weird. Um, and Patrick further says, uh, during something called the October Crisis, that um, that same terrorist group was responsible for kidnapping and assassinating Pierre Laporte, the premier, the premier of Quebec at the time. And uh, because we're Canadian, we eventually turned that assassination into a joke in the film Bon Cop, Bad Cop. Stop it. Which is apparently a real movie. It's a great name for a movie. So now I know a bunch more about Quebec. Was there anything else in that email that you thought was? No, he also recommended uh, some Canadian authors, Robertson Davies and uh, Timothy Findlay. Um, So I want to give a shout out to Canadian authors when possible. And and folks, we should really be better about recognizing when the authors we happen to be (laughs) reading are Canadian. (laughs) I mean, there's probably an argument, argument to be made that we should be reading authors from all over the place uh but it's just so easy to be an american feel like you're neglecting canada because it's just right there i mean it's like when you don't say hello to your neighbors we just take it for granted we do so hello patrick and the rest of canada thanks for listening (laughs) but what if we had italy move in up there and they were just like (laughs) changing governments all the time and uh idea that italy would take up residence in canada they would just move in they would be the new noisy neighbors like that they would be the party house they would be the the in our seth rogan movie they would be whoever those frat boys who moved in next to seth rogan were yeah zach efron yeah yeah (laughs) do you want to talk about the books that we read this week would you want to we yeah, we, we have other stuff we can save for the end. Craig, um, so this podcast <laughs> is about reading books. Every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before and describes it to the other. And you guys are just along for the ride. I thought you so. were asked that as a question. One of us reads the book and then describes it to the other? No. Is that what happens? No, I, was just, I was just explaining it. Okay. And then I was telling them that they're along for the ride and that the doors don't unlock from the inside. <laughs> Childhood locks on this podcast. Have fun, everybody. <laughs> Craig, up. what did you read this week? I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. So Truman Capote is a big, like a big figure. Like he's a big name. I have not seen hey, that movie Capote. But hey, hey. What? He does what he can about his weight. I'm not calling him fat. I'm just saying that he looms large. <laughs> like figuratively. <laughs> Yes, that's correct. He is a name that you hear. It sounds like he's a gangster. He's not, but it kind of sounds like he is. That is a pretty pretty cool name, Truman um, Capote. But yeah, he's a he's a big important dude in in 20th century American writing, which is kind of surprising when you look at his output and what sure. has kind of stood the test of time. Because mm-hmm. I think it's pretty narrow, all things considered. Um, well, because he he wrote, um, you know, he wrote short stories a lot in early in his career. He started writing a lot when he was eleven. Yes. Um, and you know he he wrote short stories, and then he wrote some really good novels, and then later on in his life, as he be, you know, as as like drugs and alcohol began to become a bigger part of his life, he stopped writing long form stuff so much, and it seems like he 
transition more into like writing articles and appearing on TV and, and throwing parties and stuff. And so um, In Cold Blood is the last novel of his that was published, at least during his lifetime. I know I was reading um, that. Oh, yeah. That other one came out that right, was like yeah, in, in, unfinished um, or no, it in, was finished, but put in a box or something. He threw it in the trash of oh. like a house sitter from across the street, found it. And it was, it was released in 2004 as Summer Crossing. So. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and after In Cold Blood, which was his follow up to Breakfast at Tiffany's, did not know he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's. News to me. Well, I mean, you were you were telling me about In Cold Blood earlier, and I was like, I said, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? And she said, I think I remember the film. And as I recall, I think we both kind of liked it. And I said, well, that's the one thing we've got. That's right. The doors don't lock, unlock from the inside. <laughs> You're stuck here listening to this nonsense. <laughs> now I can close the tab that I had open with the breakfast at Tiffany's lyrics. Are you it. kidding me? <laughs> I was ready. I was just waiting. I was waiting for my opportunity. You dropped that joke in cold blood. You did. <laughs> I did. What were you? What were we talking I was about? Talking about how after the like, in cold blood was the follow up to Breakfast at Tiffany's, a book I did not know he wrote. And then his follow-up to In Cold Blood was an unfinished work called Answered Prayers, which saw some publication in magazines. I think The New Yorker, just as In Cold Blood was published. Um, But it kind of torpedoed his career because he was writing about real people Mm -hmm. and kind of airing some dirty laundry. And we'll talk a bit more as, as we talk about In Cold Blood that he really got interested in this idea of nonfiction writing and the nonfiction novel is like the term that he coined for in cold blood. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what led him down this path of like, he became this ultra celebrity and then started just writing about what celebrities do and just kind of being like a literary version of TMZ and, (laughs) you know, pissing off people like Jackie O and that's one way to not have a career anymore, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Truman Capote's it, just his life is way it's, there's just way too much that happens in, in it for us to talk about it in the opening to our book podcast. But, um, you know, he was born in 1924, died in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, he was openly gay in a time when it most it must have been very, very difficult to do that. Yes. And um, and yeah, for at least the last like 20, 25 years of his life, he battled with alcohol and drugs. And um, in the 1980s, he had a seizure and was admitted to the hospital and brain scans showed that his brain had actually like visibly shrunk. Uh. And so for the last three or four years of his life, you know, he's he can he's writing intermittently, but, you know, his capacity is 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 really, really diminished. And then he dies at, at age 59, which is, you know, it's a, it's always tragic when when people when people with a lot to say die that early, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's tough. Because you feel like, um, I don't know. I don't know what else he would have written. And it also seemed like he'd gone off the rails in terms of what he was going to contribute to the literary canon before sure. he passed, which is yeah. its own kind of tragedy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is sad. And then the last thing that um, I think we we touched upon it in our uh, Tequila Mockingbird yeah, episode, yeah. but he was like lifelong friends with Harper Lee. <laughs> yes. Who he, was the author of Tequila Mockingbird, who, as we talked about, never actually ended up writing anything else. No, he um, he claims to have been the inspiration for Dill in the book. Uh, the, the friend. Weird, the weird neighbor kid. Who just kind of shows up. Yep. Yeah. Uh, when they were young, they went, apparently went to trials, like with Harper Lee's dad and like watched trials. Um, which I'm sure formed the basis of Harper Lee's experience that led to that book. And yeah, then. Lots of, lots of, lots of Atticus, Atticus Finch in there. Yeah. I, I think there's probably something. I'm sure people have written books. I'm sure people have written books about the similarities in Harper Lee's biographical, you know, semi-autobiographical fiction and Capote's kind of non-fiction writing style. Right. Um, in terms of basing things on real events, and, and that's potentially more interesting to them anyway than creating something from whole cloth and... You know, where is the line between what really happened and what they're making up? Um, and it seems like, you know, from what you were saying, his his career was hampered when he stepped over that line too far. Well, it, <laughs> instead of instead of making like veiled versions of of people he knew and like maintaining plausible deniability, he just started writing about people. Yeah. Well, in the catch 22 is that. In Cold Blood became a sensation because he basically invented true crime. He wrote a book about a real thing that happened and exposed this all of the the facts of this case, and people ate it up because they were part of the marketing was this is real. All of this happened. Capote got all of this information, and that's why people loved it. So then I. I I imagine Maybe it would be he Blair Witched it. Basically, except it was mostly real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? What? Yeah, wait. Was wait. Was Blair was, was Blair Witch not not real? Andrew, you're creeping me out. Craig, I'm scared. <laughs> There's a girl behind you in the corner. Oh no. <laughs> you that is one of my least favorite things in all of cinema is that girl standing in the corner of that basement. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> but anyway, if you're Truman Capote and you write this book that everyone loves and you say it's based on this, you know, method of, of storytelling that is completely based in fact, I don't know how you walk back from that. I don't know how you as pop celebrity, you know, novelist um, then go back to fiction because do you have people like questioning what yeah. you're writing for the rest of your career being like, well, who's that supposed to be? What yeah. Do you, what do you actually own about Truman Capote? And I bet that's part of it. So you want to talk about so, the book, I guess? Yeah. Hit me with this book. And then tell Bam. me about it. <laughs> uh, I bet we are going to miss stuff. I'm g- Just as we have left out stuff about Truman Capote, um, we are going to leave out stuff about this book. It's simply too big. Uh, and too wrapped up in the real world, I think, to handle, to like nail everything. Um, 
But that just means that listeners can write in with stuff that we forgot and we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, I mean, normally we're so like well-researched and comprehensive that I don't know how people are going to deal with this. I know. We, we usually do such a good job. This is going to be nuts. Just a great job. <laughs> A-plus job. So In Cold Blood is uh, inspired by a 300-word New York Times article uh, uh, about a murder in Royal rural kansas okay um about a family of four the clutters uh herb bonnie nancy and kenyon kenyon clutter that's his name okay um are murdered i believe it's 1959 i believe is the year when that happens um and he sees this story truman capote does and he and Harper Lee go out to Kansas to find out what happened, basically. I just realized that this is just serial. I know. This is just the podcast serial. We will we'll like talk 40 about years that. Ago, we will talk about ago. that because I started reading this book. And I will tell you, I knew that it was an important book. I didn't know anything else. Like, I had not seen the film Capote. I had not even heard about the nature of the crime and it's gruesome so buckle up guys um in this car with no locks in that we've car with no locks the doors are welded shut but the top is down so hop out i guess but it, no it's too high for you to climb out and then there's barbed wire around the are top. we doing a choose your own adventure book right now no no what just, is going on just keep talking okay so the clutters uh we spend the first chapter of the book learning about them, learning about their farm. Um, Herb is a respected member of um, this suburb of Garden City, Kansas, called Holcomb. He is, uh, you know, a very successful farmer. He is a little odd in that he never keeps cash on him. He always writes in, ch- you know, does uses checks, um, mm-hmm. kind of better you know, money tracking, I guess. Um, His wife, Bonnie, suffers from postpartum depression after all of her kids and kind of never recovered and is not a full-on invalid, but she has spells where she just kind of needs to be by herself and um, has issues there, so she's not, like, Um, high-functioning. His daughter, Nancy, is, like, typical all american girl like everyone likes her she's super popular and she is super successful um the son kenyon seems to be similar except he is like perfectly athletic except he has to wear glasses so he's never going to do like team sports but he's a tinkerer and he's going to take over the farm after his dad and everything's looking great for the clutters they have two other daughters who don't live on the farm anymore one's married and one's going to be married um and we're coming up on uh, Thanksgiving, so they're getting ready to have some guests, and then one night, um, I believe it's November 10th, I think, um, I might get some of these dates wrong, I apologize. November 16th. Oh, November 16th. Oh, November 10th is, a, is another day. Sorry, excuse me. Um, another day that's important. It's not just another day uh, that happened. Do you, wanna, do you have the just the story, the oh. new story pulled up? Do you want to read it? Let me find it. I've got it. Oh, do you have it? 
Yes. I don't have it pulled up. Read it to me. Okay. Um, headline is a wealthy farmer, three of family slain. And the body reads, a wealthy wheat farmer, his wife, and their two young children were found shot to death today in their home. They had been killed by shotgun blasts at close range after being bound and gagged. The father, 48-year-old Herbert W. Clutter, was found in the basement with his son, Kenyon, 15. His wife, Bonnie, 45, and a daughter, Nancy, 16, were in their beds. There were no signs of a struggle and nothing had been stolen. The telephone lines had been cut. This is apparently the case of a psychopathic killer, Sheriff Earl, Earl Robinson said. Uh, Mr. Clutter was founder of the Kansas Wheat Growers Association. In 1954, President Eisenhower appointed him to the Federal Farm Credit Board, but he never lived in Washington. The board represents the 12 farm credit districts in the country. Mr. Clutter served from December 1953 until April 1957. He declined a reappointment. He was also a local member of the Agriculture Department's Price Stabilization Board and was active when the Great Plains Wheat active with the Great Plains Wheat Growers Association. The Clutter Farm and Ranch cover almost a thousand acres in one of the richest wheat areas. Mr. Clutter, his wife and daughter were clad in pajamas. The boy was wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. The bodies were discovered by two of Nancy's classmates, Susan Kidwell and Nancy Ewalt. Uh, Sheriff Robinson said the last reported communication with Mr. Clutter took place last night around 9.30 p.m. when the victim called Gerald Van Vliet, his business partner, who lives nearby. Nearby. It's two words in this, but I feel like I should be one word. Mr. Van Vliet said the conversation had concerned the farm and ranch. Two daughters were away. They are Beverly, a student at Kansas University, and Mrs. Donald G. Jarkchow of Mar Mount Carroll, Illinois. Jarko, maybe. Yeah. So that's the that's the article. It's pretty. I mean, for as spare as it is, that's a lot of detail. Like you get down to what people are wearing and stuff. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's pretty messed up, and the the actual details of the crime involve like them slitting Herb's throat in the basement after tying everyone else up, and then shooting him, and then shooting everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um. And I know as I say this, there's actually not far from where I'm recording, there's actually been um, an incident that is leading to a manhunt right now. So I'm kind of, it's on my mind. Um, Jeez, you could have mentioned that before we started talking. We could, I could have. It's just, it's one of those things where it's, it's an unfortunate truth. And I, I think that's part of the, what was so shocking and what made the book morbidly successful is um, to start a book about this real thing and turn it into a a, a best-selling novel in 1959 when we are we haven't hit the civil rights era full on yet and we are still basking in the glow of the Leave It to Beaver 50s, you know, um, and to take this dirty laundry and and air it out and explore it um i think is what was so revelatory about it at the time and what's so unfortunate is that it's still happening now you know that kind of thing doesn't stop happening unfortunately mm -hmm. um so i mean we have we obviously have the beginning of the case in that article yes between between the law enforcement officers and capote himself like do we do we find a conclusion or is it yes oh man okay. I was impressed and surprised <laughs> by how quickly the clutters are not part of the book. 
they are almost entirely out of the book after chapter one of four. Okay. Um, there's this really interesting device that Capote starts doing where he almost starts, he creates a, a sense of like irony and foreboding as he leads up to the actual event where he's introduced the two murderers, um, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. Okay. Uh, they are recent parolees from Kansas State Penitentiary, and they are gonna they're gonna get the biggest score. And they were tipped off by a former prison mate of theirs, Floyd Wells, who used to work for Clutter. That Clutter had a bunch of money and a big safe, which is not true, um, as the first chapter of the book pains to tell you. Um, but they obviously think that is the case. And their goal is to go in there, rob everyone, or rob the house, and leave no witnesses. Um, and it actually gets kind of gruesome. Like one of the things they, one of the things Dick says is like, "We're gonna, you know, put a lot of hair on the walls." Jeez. Yeah, it's awful, dude. <laughs> there's really there's not an innocuous way to to do that. No, unless you were a barber, like a weird barber. <laughs> oh my god. So, over the course of the of chapter one, the, the, he's building the tension of this act taking place, um, and then it happens, and it's bad, uh, or they're discovered anyway. Um, meanwhile, you the book has kind of told you that these guys were responsible. Like, there's no mystery to who did it. The only mystery really is why and how exactly they pulled it off. Okay. Uh, if that makes sense. Because then we spend almost... Yeah, right. And we, we talked about that in an episode a couple of weeks ago where, like, you can tell a story where the point is to figure out who did it or you can tell a story <laughs> where the point is to figure out the motivations. Yes. Stuff. So mm-hmm. this is the second kind of thing. Yes. Um. So then we end up spending, like, a, ch- a whole chapter in Mexico with the two guys. Like, they run away to Mexico. Um, they stole $40 from the clutter farm, pawned... Jeez, what a haw. I know. <laughs> they pawned a radio that Kenyon had, um, which ends up getting tracked later, which is kind of cool, um, that that same radio that went missing was you know, found in a pawn shop that in a town where those guys had been. Right. Um, and it's... They have such a weird relationship, Dick and Perry do, because Dick clearly, like, brought Perry on to be the muscle, and Dick is just trying to do the score, and Perry is, like, far more traditionally, for lack of a better word, troubled. Like, it's his book, in a way, which is mm-hmm. weird. Um, I think the, the the narrative about Capote is that he got maybe a little close with smith because smith and hickok had not died by the time had not been um like hanged for their crimes so he i mean he got a lot of opportunities to talk with them yes that's the idea and, like interviewed them directly okay still uh, doing the serial thing that's fine yep 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 um so the book follows their kind of travels alongside the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and I love seeing the abbreviation KBI pop up all over this book. <laughs> it's kind of great. Um, led by Alvin uh, Dewey Chipmunk. Smith. Oh, sorry. No, no chipmunks. Uh, 
Um, there is a squirrel at the end of the book that is like almost a character, but no chipmunks. Okay. Um, and so w- what's happening in chapter two is called persons, persons unknown. And the cops have kind of deduced that it isn't just one person, it's two. And you kind of get to, you the reader know that it's two because Capote told you already, but you kind of get to watch the cops deduce it. Like they took some high res photographs of the the site of Clutter's death and they see like boot prints, um, two different boot prints. Also, they deduce that based on how they were killed, there's no way that they could have tied up, one man could have tied up all four of them and gotten them into different rooms and like tucked Nancy into her bed and all that kind of stuff if there was only one of them. Like, right. One of them with a gun could not have done all that. So are there are there any of the cops that we get to know as well as we get to know the killers? Like I'm, we watched uh, Fargo recently, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a movie where you spend a lot of time with the people who are committing the crime and also the cops who are tracking them. Uh huh. So like, do you you say it's it's Perry Smith's book, but is there any cop who's like providing balance for that, or is it just part of the the narrative it's kind of part of the narrative there's a couple beat cops who lead the interrogations when they finally do catch the guys and there are uh there's one whose name escapes me that actually goes to like hickok's family um and tracks some of them down they're working they're all working for alvin smith um we do get a little bit of smith's home life which is that kind of it's interesting it this we've encountered this before andrew where um it's weird to read a book that is ostensibly based on true things and is setting up stereotypes or tropes for this type of fiction that we've encountered since like alvin smith's relationship with his mother with well, not his mother his wife <laughs> oh boy uh his <laughs> wife is that like he's bringing his work home with him and mm. He's not, he knew Herb Clutter personally, so he's not going to rest until this case is solved and he's terrified that it won't get solved or that that he thinks they figured out who it is, but they'll never catch them. Um, And so he's different around the house. And while it's not causing a a marriage ending strain on their relationship, it's certainly causing problems for them. Right. Like it's the kind of thing that could eventually become a strain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and Capote hints at some of these larger ramifications of the crime. One of the things he talks about is how um, they assumed initially that it was someone in the town. Um, there's actually like this really witty uh, paragraph break where one of the cops says, uh, I bet the person who did this is, you know, 10 miles from where we stand. And then there's like a paragraph break and they jump scene and Capote writes approximately 400 miles east of where he was standing. (laughs) And then he transfers over to like a Perry and Hickok scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is really his focus on in Holcomb is how this small town that never locks any doors because that's one of the ways these guys got in um, where everyone knows each other have been, you know, uh, pick a terrible word, ravaged or terrified or whatever um, by 
these two men from nowhere who just came in and killed people. Right. Um, and so the the entire tenor of the town has changed. Um, I'm trying to find the exact quote because there's a sure, really... Sure, because I mean, I... I... Go ahead. Like I assume it's like a small town where everybody knows each other, and then you have it's it's like a man comes to town thing where they they come to town and something happens, and then the dynamic has changed in some significant and irreversible way. Yeah, there's shots of um, shots. I say it like it's a film. There's scenes where <laughs> um, it was a film, though, right? I, yeah, there are a couple film versions. Um, okay, where like hunters are walking through the you know near the town when they're going to like hunt pheasant or whatever. And they're seeing people who've been up all night with like their lamp lights on at like six in the morning or their like living room lights on with their doors locked because they're terrified that something's going to happen. There's a really great Capote line where he says, imagination can open any door, turn the key and let terror walk right in. Um, And so this whole town kind of shuts down in on itself which is not the picture that he paints at the beginning of the book yeah i mean i i get that on um i mean you, you know you just you just said that there was something happening happening in your neighborhood that that brings this to mind and then i'm i'm thinking of um last fall when oh, yeah. that guy tried to kick our door in yeah um yeah like the you know the door was fixed like that night and then by the next day, we had a second, more metal door up over the first door. But that first night, like, I had to sleep on the couch out in the living room because I couldn't, like, I couldn't be that far from where the door was without constantly worrying about somebody trying to get into the door. Yeah. Oh, totally. And that, and it's hard. It just really messes with your 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 sense of security and even if your sense of security is maybe not like merited in the first place it's still a hard thing to lose oh yeah and any sort of it it's thankfully nothing happened in your instance and so to use the word trauma sounds like no it's too much definitely not trauma but, but i'm just like bringing up the thing the one thing in my life that comes close <laughs> but i know what you mean in that sense that like something bad happens and then you just it's very easy then to imagine that that will always happen. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's why it's moments like that that make this book resonate outside of like the details of the case, if that makes sense. So he just does a good job of capturing what it's like to have people intrude upon. Yes. You're like you and your community and all that stuff. Yes. Um, But then, like I said, are there any other like characters who stand out or, or is it just kind of a general sense of no, no, no. Um, In the town, it's mostly a general sense that we spend a lot of time with um, the, in the town, we spend time with the woman who runs like the coffee shop and she's very much like, Hey, when something's going to bet, something bad's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. You're going to die. It's fine. Like you're going to (laughs) die when you're going to die. Don't worry about it. Um, She's pretty cool. But then we spend a lot of the book with Perry and Dick Hickok. Um, there's this one scene where they're hi- they're hitchhiking back to Kansas for whatever reason. I don't know why they're going back to Kansas. Um, oh, yeah, why would you do that? His family. Oh, excuse me. Hickok's family lives in Kansas, and that's uh, he like wants to visit them. Okay. Um, and they're hitchhiking, and they have a plan to like 
kill the first person that picks them up. And they have like a whole scheme to do it. This is like totally real where mm-hmm. uh, they were going to, they like told a joke and um, Hickok would say the cue for Hick, for Perry to strangle the driver of the car like with his seatbelt or whatever or hit him in the back of the head would be, hey, Perry, pass me a match. So I'm going to read you this part of the thing like dick is sitting up front with the guy who's driving the car telling jokes and he says here's a riddle the riddle is what's the similarity between a trip to the bathroom and a trip to the cemetery what's the okay what's the what do you think the difference is andrew like one is permanent when you gotta go you gotta go okay and then he says hey perry pass me a match and it's like they're gonna kill the dude right then but then like another hitchhiker shows up um Saving like good, the only way to stop a bad hitchhiker is with, with a another good hitchhiker. hitchhiker. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just they're they're kind of rampaging across the country. Um, you do get a lot of Perry's backstory. Perry was raised in an abusive family that split up, and he went to live with his father in Alaska, and his father abused him there, and his sister disowned him. And he was in an orphanage, and one of the nuns who worked in the orphanage tried to drown him at one point. Yikes. And he was in a motorcycle accident that messed up his leg, so he's addicted to aspirin. And it seems like a pretty mild addiction, all things considered. <laughs> yeah, but it's bad. I mean, it's the pain that is described is obviously Sure, bad. yeah, yeah. Um, and so he's painted as this kind of sympathetic... Uh, he he flies into uncontrollable rages, and that's why you know he was able to commit this murder. Um, and Hickox, the opportunist who just wanted to get the money, and then they had to do they, he he needed the guy there to do the killing for him. Um, and the, the whole latter section after their conviction, where Perry's in uh like isolation, he is um kind of renouncing Dick and renouncing everything they've done. Um, But he never expresses, like, true remorse for what he did. Uh, And he basically says, like, what does he say? He had no reason to kill those people, but he had plenty of reasons to kill, like, someone, and they just happened to be who he took it out on. And it's really interesting how lo- how much time capote spends like trying to build sympathy for perry's ter- terrible life and then still having him be kind of one of the most confounding figures of the book yeah i mean and that with that information it's not hard to see why the victims only exist in the first chapter of this book because in the story as it's being told it doesn't really matter who they are i mean it it, it matters that it happened to somebody, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter so much who it happened to. No, no, not at all. Because it wasn't like personal. It was just a thing that happened. And that's. And I think that's what's so troubling about the crime, right? For people, and definitely was for people at the time, and is still troubling for people when senseless violence like this happens. Mm-hmm. Is there isn't a logical reason why it happened? There isn't a um, and because it was planned, it's even weirder. It's not like they broke in and got startled and then killed a bunch of people. 
it was like they were going to rob these people because they were the people to rob. And then they decided to also kill them. Right. Um, and there's weird details too. Like when they put Herb Clutter down uh, like in the basement room before they when they tie him up. Like they put down a mattress box so that his like knees are more comfortable like on the cement. Oh, that's nice of them. And it's really like even They're the friendly murderers. I know. And the detectives are like, that's really weird. It looks like they did that for comfort. And then they later really go the extra mile. I know. And then in Perry's uh Perry's um confession, he talks about that. And they're like, Oh, I knew it. That's weird. It's well, what are they <laughs> What do they think they stand to gain by telling the cops that? Like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna reduce your sentence because at least you were like nice. No, to it's, the people it's just who how he tells the story. It's just how he how he tells it. I was really surprised by how the latter part of the book kind of dove headlong into the legal process. There's a lot. They get appeals for their death sentence uh, multiple times over. V- multiple psychiatric evaluations which were kind of nascent at the time so there's lots of who's allowed to evaluate them and what do those doctors recommendations mean and you get the the sense is that the whole system is messy as anything mm-hmm. and it's amazing that anybody both gets caught or gets off free cuz there's like it could just keep going indefinitely the legal process yeah. It's kind of bizarre in that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I do want to get oh, off the ahead. book a little bit and ask you about cereal because I feel like. Well, yeah, I had a, I had a question about something serially to diet into. And for, for our listeners, I assume that if you're listening to our podcast, it means you like podcasts. And if you like <laughs> podcasts, I assume it means you're listening to cereal. Um, Which for those of you, if you haven't, is an NPR spinoff about a 15 year old murder case. Is it even NPR? It's a This American Life spin. Yes. Um, excuse me. That uh, took place in 1999 in Baltimore that uh, a man was convicted of murder and he says he does he didn't do it. So one of the reporters has been talking to him and a bunch of other people for months. Boom. Yeah. And the the last episode of the quote unquote season is is slated to post on Thursday. So the exciting conclusion. But my question about this book and as it relates to serial is like, to what extent is Capote a character in this book? Because in, in serial, like Sarah Koenig, the, the woman who is doing all the investigating, like the woman who got drawn into this case in the first place, like you, she is the audience surrogate character. So like you're discovering stuff as she discovers it. Like that's the, that is the, shows perspective i guess Uh i I wonder you know with a true crime thing like is capote an invisible observer or do you see him like interviewing and getting to know perry smith or like what what is his role in he is completely invisible and it's really bizarre i've never read anything like this and i'm sure there are books like this that have come out since um (laughs) so it's it feels weird for me to read like a nigh 50 year old book and be like this is crazy have you ever heard of this kind of thing before um but it is weird he writes scenes that how do you know that had that happened um there are have been pointed out there are scenes that he wholly invented 
Um, yeah, I was just going to bring up that there there have been um there have been allegations or accusations that he tweaked the story to make it a better story. Of course. Basically. And um as as I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we just we just finished up watching the John Adams miniseries last oh, night yeah. and I was reading through about all the stuff that was inaccurate about it because of course as a historical biopic, they have altered things to make the narrative more compelling. And I don't like, I don't know, like the temptation to do that has to be wow, but it's really, really high because I mean, even like a lot of reporters, when they're asking interview subjects questions, they are like, they have a story in mind already and they're just trying to get evidence that backs that story up. Like precisely if you encounter a fact that makes your story a, a, less interesting or less exciting story like the 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 um man what's the word i want like like the impulse to downplay it must be really really strong oh yeah well and what was interesting is not really i resisted all urges to read about how the book was made until after i finished it um which did lead to the weird sensation of like how the heck does he know where these guys went in Mexico, how does he know what they were doing, like leading up to the crime in such specific detail? You know, mm-hmm. um, after you read that, okay, you find out that he was interviewing these guys, but he wasn't necessarily sitting down and recording their conversations. Here's a quote from a Times reporter on how the book was made to record real life. Capote trained himself for two years in remembering conversations without taking notes. Friends would read to him, and he would try to transcribe what he had heard, eventually <laughs> reaching the point where he was 92% accurate. Okay. That's pretty accurate, but uh, I do want to be totally accurate. A minus, Capote. Come on. I hate transcribing interviews as much as anybody, but that seems a little extreme. And there's this great there's there's a great slate article and i know that you don't always feel like there are great slate articles there are great slate articles there are just no great slate headlines okay well yes there's a slate article called i found the papers of the fact checker who worked on in cold blood what did he miss um but the results will shock you sandy campbell was a former broadway actor apparently who then retired and started working for the new yorker he was assigned to be the fact checker on In Cold Blood as it was being written. The facts he checked were like, the what's the deal with pheasants in Kansas? And like, <laughs> how people's names were spelled. What he did not do, the, this, uh, this writer, Ben Yagoda for Slate in 2013, um, he points out that there's an exchange in the book between Nancy and Kenyon Clutter, the brother and sisters, the brother and sister who would be killed and there are no corroborative witnesses in this scene where she says, Good grief, Kenyon, I hear you. As usual, the devil was in Kenyon. His shouts kept coming up the stairs. Nancy, telephone. Barefoot, pajama-clad, Nancy scampered down the stairs. And then the writer says, Campbell made no marks next to this passage. Like, how could Capote have had that? What? How did he know that that happened? He didn't know that yeah. that happened. So, like, what what I'm getting is that Instead of the author insertion and like the self doubt that you get in serial, what you're getting in in cold blood is the truth as Capote is reporting it, and you're just kind of asked to believe what it is that he's telling you. Precisely, and and recognizing that memory is fluid, 
right? And as you were saying earlier, memory also come like will work in tandem with whatever story we are telling ourselves ahead of time that yeah, of course there's stuff in here that's not completely true. Um there I think there's also I guess like that that makes a more compelling story, right? Like like I've read a lot Heck of criticism yeah. of serial and there have been you know people who are working on the show have said this themselves is that you know we might not find an ending to this thing that we're working on. It might just be a bunch of stuff that happened. Yes. And maybe people are going to get frustrated about that, but that's just how life is. Oh, and people don't like that. People don't and like so that. So I could see this like if Capote tried to do that with this book, I can I can you know, there I am willing to bet that we would not be talking about it right now. No, and I think it does it obviously helps the structure of the book that by the time he was really putting it together the guys had been caught, right? So it wasn't an unfinished like it wasn't completely unsolved crime when he was writing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of crazy some of the stuff he puts in there. He also fabricates an ending scene between uh, Alvin Smith from the KBI and um, Nancy's friend uh, Sue, I believe, um, in their in the graveyard where they're like walking around like by the clutter graveyard talking to each other and both of them have said that that never happened um but it's a nice way to end the book you know right um, yeah. it's really fascinating and, and it was weird reading it and thinking that it was real people that that was the thing that kept coming back to me in the same way that it's kept coming back to me in listening to serial is that like this is real like there were real people and relatives and there's a sign on the clutter farm right now that's like private keep out that might like not right now like as we were speaking yes right now, or yeah geez. because it's the subject of a famous novel you know it's just mm, when yeah, does like it that, that's it's it's an interesting story but then the like voyeurism that that invites gets uncomfortable just like the internet vigilantes who have taken it upon themselves to solve the the case in serial yeah oh god that's that borders on gross yeah and it's hard because koenig set out to just tell an interesting story right and then it became this phenomenon because it's a good story that people have the means to go and dig up um and then it, what is the line between like reporting slash storytelling and exploitation? Right. Yeah. And I don't, it's a it's case I, and by I case. Don't, I think but. that, I think that serial is on the right side of that, but the people who listen to serial are not. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> was there, was there anything else about in cold blood as we wrap up that you wanted to, um, to just jump on? Or do you think we're good? I think that people who, I think people should read it because I think it is very, 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 very good. Um, I think that Capote's turns of phrase take it above just being a, you know, a long form piece of fact writing. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even get a chance to talk about his prose, but there's a lot of good stuff. There's one about like grief. being a circle that enclosed people there's like lots of little standout lines um some of them come from the mouths of the people actually 
in the case or like letters and some of the, some of those are outstanding um but he does just a really good job of being an outsider from new york and still capturing this small town yeah. um and painting that picture and painting that tragedy so um and and then the latter half about what is capital punishment and and why capital punishment and arguments for and against we could do like a whole show on that uh, but we won't because we're out of time um, <laughs> but folks who have read in cold blood or have questions about it should feel free to write them in to overduepod at gmail.com. As we said, Patrick sent us an email. I don't know why I turned into a game show wizard there for a second. Um, Behind door number three. <laughs> you are an a, email address. You are a frog now. I'm a wizard. Um, and then also uh, Nata wrote in. Is that, did I say that right, Andrew? Um, I think think that's right um and she did, if it's wrote, not we're super sorry i know she wrote in to just thank us for the show and, and we really appreciate the message she also suggested maybe an episode on doll's house or try to be happy t-shirts andrew i wanted to say this out loud over the internet in the hopes that someone would make a try to be happy t-shirt that or the people would just encourage us to do it i think either way i would <laughs> I want to see what just, the community just, creates. Okay, we could we could see what the community creates. We have we have amazing fans as um as we've discovered this week and pretty much every week. Um, um over the weekend, Craig and I were watching the um the the iTunes list of top literature podcasts, and we were dancing around in the top ten for a little while. As the highest I saw us get was number nine. Whoa. On the list of all iTunes literature podcasts, which for context is topped by something about cereal, the New York Times book review, and a bunch of Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that comes because we've gotten so many great um, ratings and a couple of really great reviews in the last couple of weeks. Um, People have been recommending the show to their friends on Twitter. Um Lee did that for Sarah this week. Uh, Martin found us and said hi on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash overdue pod. Um, Renee wrote out to us on Twitter again. Good to see Renee. Um, people have been all over our Facebook page. Thank you for that. That's facebook.com slash overdue pod. And we've gotten a couple of uh, really great iTunes reviews in the last couple of weeks by um, by Magma Suit, uh, Cow Tippin' 23, and Wine With Dinner in particular. So thank you guys. If you want to find our iTunes page, the place to do that is through our homepage at OverduePodcast.com. Um, up there, we also have Amazon links to the books that we have read and that we're going to read. If you want to support the show, clicking those links and then buying the books or just whatever from Amazon is the best way to do it. Um, and yeah, you can subscribe through iTunes. And if you do that, please rate and review us because it really helps us out a lot and makes us feel nice. And um, if you're not an Apple person, we have an RSS feed there too. And you can use that to subscribe to the show in whatever podcatcher you'd happen to like. What are you going to read next? Are you still working on Lolita? Yes, I'm okay. Here's here's the schedule for the next two weeks like as we know it now is um, like the holiday season has kind of crept up on us because we've had other stuff like going on but um next week we would like to do a holiday episode so i think we're going to read a couple of short stories i i am going to read herschel and the hanukkah goblins yeah you are by by eric a kimmel 
And Craig currently plans to read A Kidnapped Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. Yeah, I, I have no idea. what I, th- I hear that it's a true crime novel, um, if you believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> I just didn't know that there are Hanukkah goblins. Yeah, buckle up. I didn't know that Hanukkah had a monster. Hanukkah's got more than you think it does, my friend. Okay. I mean, my wife does she lights the menorah which is which is nice and i think that's i mean i'm not jewish but i think a lot of the cultural stuff is cool if she doesn't like the menorah then the goblins show up andrew i know i did not know about the goblins i did not know about the goblins and then after that i'm going to be reading about lolita which is about a totally different kind of goblin oh my god we gotta get out of here (laughs) okay everybody we will see you next week thank you so much for all your support you guys are the best um until next monday everybody try to be happy Yeah, man. We got um, those good emails. Yeah, we're popping off. Popping all the way off. Popping. Is that something that people say? So, sure. Popping off, popping out, popping up. Popping pills. Popping lock. Hop pop. Pop. <laughs> pop. Corn. Pop goes the weasel. Snap, crackle, pop. 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 Just pop. Just like soda pop. Pop pop. Here's here comes my pop pop.